that self-work should never stop. It never mm -hmm. stops. If you're going to be an effective practitioner and a wonderful human being, it will never stop. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there are issues around this example, equity, inclusion, diversity, that literally to my last day of full-time work, I was learning about it. Mm -hmm. And it's like, wow, I had not thought of that. Welcome to Student Affairs Now, the online learning community for student affairs educators. I'm your host, Mamta Akapati. Student Affairs Now is a premier podcast and learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays. Find us at studentaffairsnow.com on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Silas. Visit styluspub.com and use promo code SANOW for 30% off and free shipping. Today's episode is also sponsored by Simplicity. A true partner, Simplicity supports all aspects of, a stu of student life with technology platforms that empower institutions to make data-driven decisions. Stay tuned to the end of the podcast for more information about each of our sponsors. As I mentioned, I'm Mamta Akapati. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I am broadcasting to you today from Austin, Texas. Austin, Texas is situated on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Humanos, Coahuiltecan, Comanche, Lipan Apache, and Takawa peoples. And now we welcome everyone, folks. It's such a joy to be here in community with all of you today. And um, it's among my greatest joys to welcome our next guest, Mike Sagawa. So I'm gonna go through a professional bio, um, which I, you know, it doesn't do him justice. And I think it's important to honor um, our journeys of our colleagues. Mike has held senior student affairs officers roles at Pitzer College, University of Nevada, Reno, and the University of Puget Sound. He has also worked in student affairs at the Evergreen State College, University of Washington, Central Missouri State University and Colorado State University, where he oversaw residential life among other student programs. Mike has been active in many student affairs professional associations, including NASPA, ACPA, and Akuho I. If I listed his many accomplishments and contributions to our profession, we would not have time for the actual conversation of this episode. More than all of these things, when I close my eyes and I think about hope personified, Mike is one of the faces I see. There are many moments when I can remember running on an empty spirit tank, and Mike has somehow always been there to fill it up. And he doesn't offer an empty positivity. His positivity is dense and rich, and it comes with depth. One of the reasons being part of this particular podcast team was so compelling for me is because I want all of us to remember that we're not alone in our jobs or in our lives. And I hope when you experience this episode, you feel closer to the wisdom within you and connected to the wisdom outside of you. With that, now let's get to our conversation. Mike, thank you so very much uh, for joining me today and agreeing to, to be on this episode of Student Affairs Now. And welcome to the podcast. Thanks, um, Martha. It's so good to see you. Spend time so Yes, it's, it's good to be in community with you. And I know I talked a little bit about kind of your experience, like on, on paper, right? The, the yeah. experiences that you've had in higher education, but can you tell us a little bit in your own words about your journey in higher education? Yeah. Um, you know, I'm one of those folks that uh, never knew this field existed. Um, this wasn't what I dream dreamt of when I was growing up. You know, I don't think any of us did. Um, you know, it really started, so many of my decisions were like, oh, okay, sure, why not? They weren't well-planned or thought through or anticipated. So, so for instance, the choice to go to undergraduate school, went to UC Irvine. Well, the reason I chose to go to UCI was because it was the right amount of miles from my home in San Diego. So my parents couldn't see me every day, but I could get home if I needed to. Well, it turned out to be so fortuitous though, because, uh, when I was at UCI, I had my all-time favorite job, which was being an RA. Um, and I say that to this day, 
45 years ago, I was an RA and still my favorite job, but it led me on this path. It got me on this path. So, you know, as an undergraduate, I was a political science major. I didn't know what I was going to do after that. Um, poli sci majors usually went to law school or graduate school. I didn't want to go to law school, so I thought I'd go to grad school. But I didn't know what I was going to do. So, uh, but I'd love being an RA, as I said. So I asked the Res Life folks um, if they heard of any kind of internship or assistantship opportunities. I'd be interested in doing that in graduate school. And they started sending me materials about grad schools and these student affairs programs, which I didn't know existed. The one that caught my eye was at Colorado State. It was a pretty poster, colorful, you know, it was like Colorado, why not? Um, so I applied to CSU and Bowling Green and um, student affairs programs, but I also applied to um, public policy, um, urban policy graduate programs at Berkeley and UCLA, because I thought that's what I was gonna do when I grew up was be a city planner. Mm. And I ended up, taking the first offer that I got because I wasn't a risk taker. And the first offer came from Colorado State. So I decided to go to CSU for graduate school, be a hall director there. And, you know, as I said, when I need to grow up and get a real job, I'd go back, get a city planning degree and go into that. 40 years later, you know, it's like, well, <laughs> never had to grow up, never had to go back to get another degree. So you, uh, and you enumerated the rest of the stops and I'll just say about each of those stops, they were terrific places. Um, there was always something about each and every one of those places that I loved. And, yeah. you know, there were also things about each and every one of those places that I'm going, yeah, I could have done without this. But overall, overwhelmingly, they were great stops for me on my journey. And I will say very few, if any of them, were actually well-planned or well-thought-out. Yeah. So Mike, we could, we can, you know, and every time I speak with you, we can jump from so many different jumping points in your conversation. And when you and I connected um, to plan our, you know, the scheduling of this conversation, um, and frankly, every time we've spoken, you have held true to my favorite job is an RA. Um, and that sticks with me because I think about my favorite jobs and, and it's, you know, I have my version of that story. I think many of us do kind of our, our origin story, so to speak, but in our conversation, which I want to just lift up again here, this idea when we were processing about if you had to be an RA today, yeah. you know, as we kind of think about, you know, the trajectory or, you know, I, I would say maybe it's an ebb and flow of our profession. I don't think it's a singular trajectory or, or it's fixed, but thinking about the juxtaposition of the RA role that you had or the RA role that I had and what an RA is asked to do today, what what comes up for you and what is that kind of, I mean, it's a bigger conversation about the nature of our profession and well-being, but I would love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, and it's probably at the foundation, the crux of the challenges that we have as a profession today. Um, I don't think they're insurmountable, but I think they are really challenging. Well, and that is, um, I've been doing a number of, of presentations um, in the last few years, last three years, so, in which folks asked me to talk about you know, how are we doing as a profession, you know, mm -hmm. and how do we sustain ourselves in this work? And I always started off with what I call my history slides. I put up a slide, the first slide has about six or seven topics on it. You know, they range from mental health to student financial concerns to housing. And I ask folks, well, what do you think of this list? And they look at it for a second and they go, yeah, I'm dealing with all those things. And then the next slide is, well, that is the agenda for the Dean of Men from literally 102 years ago. That was what they discussed at the first gathering of what would become NASPA. Mm -hmm. So every one of those six or seven topics is still on our list. I mean, we're still dealing with them. Mm -hmm. Then I throw up another slide, which is very dense and text heavy, which has probably, oh, I don't know, 30, 35 items on it. And those are the things that I think are impacting us now um, in student affairs. And I date it back to when I think it first hit our, hit our radar screen. So, you know, from 100 years ago to 50 years ago, 25, 20, 10, 5. But lately, those things have now been popping up on a monthly basis. Yeah. 
They used to be decades apart, Mom. I really do yeah. believe that. They used to be decades apart, you know, and then they were years apart, mm -hmm. months in the last few years. But that's, they're coming at us so fast. And every one of those 30 or 40 items on my list doesn't mm -hmm. come off the list. Right. Everything that started with us 100 years ago is still with us. And it's just been piled on top ever since. Um, well, so something, I was yeah. gonna say something that you shared, and I'm gonna go back to the RA, R, the RA example yep. to continue um, um, our conversation and your thoughts. When you shared that with me and we started talking about the RA role now, it also took me back to, you know, when I started at Rollins, you know, so that's approximately 10 years ago at this point. And I remember our, this, like two years into my job, the director of the wellness center coming to me and saying, I think we need to start a dedicated support group for peer educators for, so for our RAs and peer advisors. So, um, and she was like, they're caring too much. And that just took me aback. Right. And, and, and so I think about it then, and, and just um, kind of the increasing scope of crisis mitigation and intervention. I think that's seeping through every level that I don't know I, if I would have been that equipped to do that role um, today, if I had the opportunity um, to be an RA. Uh, and You're absolutely right. It's every level. And every year that I was a vice president, I always made sure that I had a chance to welcome the RAs on their first day of training. Yeah. Um, and literally the last five to seven years, I would share with them, uh, yeah, I was an RA. I loved the job, yada, yada, yada. But then I said, but I don't know that I would have done it today, knowing what we have to train you in. You know, my rest life folks, you know, for the last four or five years, six, seven years probably, complained that they didn't have enough time to train the RAs. And training was at least 10 days <laughs> and they wanted yeah. more, right? Yeah. Um, and I understood that the things that, that, our RAs, our student leaders, our peer leaders deal with is huge and reflective of that list of things that have come down onto our plate as student affairs folks. Mm -hmm. So that's the reason that I say to our student leaders, I don't know that I would have done it mm -hmm. today because they take it on knowing what they're going to be dealing with. I right. mean, they've lived it. You know, if they're an RA, they've lived it for one, two or three years already having lived in a residence hall. You know, so it's not like they don't know what's coming or what they may be dealing with. Yeah. So in that regard, you know, it just adds to my love for our students. It's like they still do the stuff that I did as a student 40 years ago, willingly, yeah. happily. You know, it's like I mean, they're special people to do it. Yeah, I find um, as time has progressed, uh, my affection for um, the hope, you know, our students hope for our future at any age and stage in life. Uh, it it has continued to grow. Um, and so um, it's interesting. I know that some of us, you know, and, and we're human. So yeah, we experience moments of burnout and sometimes we're jaded when, you know, in certain circumstances, but overall, like there's this just compounding um, love for, for, you know, what we get to do and how we get to be in community alongside students for, to help us all co-create our best selves. Um, and yet, um, you know, you and I hear the conversations, right, about, you know, mass exodus in the profession. And I don't think it's just our profession, many professions. There's a lot. It was happening before COVID, but certainly um, accelerated after the fact. How, like, what sits with your spirit around these conversations? Because I hear them. And I also double down. Like, I think for me, I still believe this is one of the best professions and ways to be in community and, and serve one another. It doesn't take away the complex issues, but I sit in this really messy space around both of those very real issues. It's, um, there, there's so much that we could unpack there. <laughs> you know, I'll start with, I believe even more strongly in the importance and centrality of the work that we do on our campuses mm -hmm. with our students. I say that though, and that these are still academic institutions, so we're the complementary piece. But I think that coming out of 
the pandemic, if we are truly coming out of the pandemic, there is an even greater and deeper appreciation for the work that we do from our faculty colleagues, from other administrative colleagues. So I think that's another silver lining to, to coming out of the last three or four years. So there is a deeper and broader appreciation for our work, um, but our work has gotten even more complicated, right? And so I, I believe real strongly in the importance and the critical nature of our work, but that puts even more burden and responsibility on us. You know, and, and yet Mamta, I, <laughs> I love this work. I absolutely love the work. Um, and something that, uh, I don't want to forget to say, you know, in the context of our students, and that is now that I'm at this point of my life and career, which is probably the retirement stage, what I remember about the career and the work are the people, and especially the students. And I'll tell you, whenever a former student, now an alumnus, reaches out to Zoom, to call, to visit, you know, whatever it is, just having one of those in a month sustains me. Um, it's the reward of the work. And, you know, as much as I love the students, I don't know what I anticipated that that would be what would, what would uplift me constantly. And it didn't take very many of them. And so I would say to folks who are still in the midst of all of this, don't forget, it, it is about our students. And yes, a small percentage of our students take up a lot of our time and they need that time. They really, really do. But don't forget about the other 80 or 90% that you are still serving and are still benefiting from our work. Mm -hmm. And every now and then they will remind you of their appreciation for it. And don't just pass it off. Don't just dismiss it. Don't just say, oh, well, thank you and move on. Embrace it, you know, hold on to it, remember it. Because that's really, for me, what, what sustained me throughout the 40, 45 years I did the work and what I hold on to now. I mean, I in this room, I've got a box that has the special cards and notes and photographs that have been given to me predominantly by students, some like people like you, but those are things out of all of the plaques, out of all of the certificates, out of all of the trophies, that's the thing that's out. Yeah, I mean, certainly uh, when we think about lifting the human spirit right the the that which is permanent um that that ever present human spirit and to be able to to be in the work of lifting the human spirit i just think is is so it it, it is truly inspiring well, and, and I think yeah. what what hasn't changed since the time that i first entered the work and you entered the work and now we have colleagues entering the work now is that what students remember about their undergraduate experience, especially, is predominantly the work that we're involved with. You know, right. they still don't necessarily remember all the lectures or labs or performances that they may have been involved with as an undergraduate. They may remember their faculty, they may remember some of their other colleagues, but what they remember, you know, is their residential experience, their student leadership experience, their volunteer experience. That's what they remember when they're asked about, what do you remember about your undergraduate days? Mm -hmm. And it's not only remembering those things, but it's understanding the impact that those experiences and that learning had on who they are as a person today, yeah. which I think we need even more than ever before. Yeah, I, I hear that. And I, I resonate so deeply with you um, on those emotions and, and reflections. And I, I would love to get your guidance, right? I mean, I think many of our colleagues, we enter the profession uh, knowing this, um, either being positively impacted by folks um, in student affairs, or maybe um, there's some moments where it's like, oh, I had a terrible experience and I want to be part of improving it, right? Yeah. So however we- I can do it we, better than they yeah, can do it. Right, and, and I want to be part of the change. Yeah. And so um, for whatever reasons, they're all, um, they all add value, right? To, yes. to, to how we continue to grow and serve more fully, more authentically. And um, in many spaces, and I'll, uh, even for myself, there are times when I have grieved um, not being able to, I think, engage in the way that, that 
I anticipated that I would be able to, right? Because, you know, of like you said, the list grows, things stay on the list, they don't come off the list. And so what thoughts would you give uh, to our colleagues who are listening or watching around how we sustain ourselves as our profession and as the human condition continues to evolve? The sustaining of ourselves and our people um, is, I think, the most fundamental challenge for our profession. And it's, I think you pointed out earlier in our conversation, it's not just our profession. I mean, this is work life right now, I think, in our society. But for student affairs folks, the question of how do I sustain myself is huge. Um, and you're also right that this was pre-pandemic conversation for some of us. Um, the three or four NASPAs prior to pandemic hitting, these were literally the conversations I was having with my colleagues um, and with mentees and others. And I was asking them point blank, can you see yourself doing this work for another 20 years, You know, depending upon where you were in your career? And Mamta, there wasn't a person in literally dozens and dozens of conversations who just said, yep, no problem. Um, the more typical response was a pause for a second or two. And then they would say, you know, I really haven't said this to anyone, but I've thought it a lot. And I don't know how I'm going to sustain myself for a career, mm -hmm. 20 years, 30 years, 10 years, whatever it is. And it was really heart-wrenching for them because they said, I still love this work. I love my students, but boy, I see what, goes on in this work now. And if they aren't sitting yet in the big chair in the SSAO chair, they're going, I've seen what it takes to sit in that chair. And I'm not sure I want to do that. But I have a family, you know, I have bills to pay. I have loans to pay. This is what I train to do. Yeah. I don't know what to do about this. Mm -hmm. So I think it starts though with a recognition of this is where I am, you know, and and owning that. Um, and so that's why at the start of the sessions I've been doing, I throw up the history slide. Mm -hmm. This is our reality. I mean, to say otherwise is not reality. And in my clinical term, I'd say you're crazy if you didn't feel overwhelmed because we are overwhelmed with this. Mm -hmm. So the first thing for me is stepping back and being able to say, yeah, what we're doing is really hard. Um, and accepting that that is the reality. Mm -hmm. Then you can move forward with, okay, so what do I need to do about this? Mm -hmm. and, it's, and it's not just what do I need to do about it? What do my peers need to do about this? What, is my, what, is, what do my supervisors need to do about this? What does my president need to do about this? What do boards right. of trustees need to do about this? It can't be solved by a singular person. You know, although you are responsible for your own development, I get that. Um, and so it's, it's stepping back, it's accepting the reality, and then moving forward is what can I do about it? What can I ask of the people around me mm -hmm. to do about it? What can I change? What maybe I can't change? Um, you know, these institutions have been here for hundreds and hundreds of years, some of them. Some, they're not going to change dramatically in the ways that they do things and their DNA and their culture. And there were a number of times that I made the choice I needed to move on because what was challenging me and bothering me, that wasn't going to change at this place. And so mm -hmm. I could keep hitting my head against that wall or do something else. And I think as a supervisor, as a leader, sometimes we're not good at supporting our staffs and opening up that thought process. You know, maybe there needs to be a change here for you yeah. and supporting them in doing that. Um, because if it's not our students on this campus, it could be students at other campuses that will benefit from it. Mm -hmm. So it is also being open to, I may need to make a change because yeah. I can't change the things that are really at the core bothering me about this place or these people you know so there's a lot of just accepting what is but then taking control over well what can i do about it um, mm -hmm. so it 
<laughs> it's also very, very individualistic because I get that for some of us, you know, the term that has been used is we're place bound. No, I have the yes. kids in school, you know, uh, I have a partner who is tied very much to this place or this locale for good, good reasons. You know, that's when, okay, we need to get more creative as well. And I'm not sure as a profession, when it comes to our professional development, we've been very creative overall. Um, when you think of professional development, everybody always thought of going to the national conferences, right? That, that was the professional development. And yet I see so many opportunities, you know, at home, literally in your community, on your local campus, regionally, now with Zoom and other technology, it doesn't have to be you waiting to go off to NASPA or ACP or COOLI or NODA for the national conference. Um, mm -hmm. And you can tailor it. Um, you can tailor it to what you need. So in, again, in these sessions that I've been doing, I talk about job exchanges, job shadowing, you know, yeah. that there are a lot of things that you could do that you can make a decision on. All you need is one other person to agree to do it. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so I think getting more creative about what is professional development for me, there are a lot of opportunities. Yeah. The last thing I'll say right now, though, about it is, but you've got to take ownership of it. Yes. You know, it, it is not the responsibility of your vice president or your director or your associate dean mm -hmm. to map out and to execute your professional development. No, that's yours. That's all yours. Um, and I've, I've had too many younger colleagues for whom they didn't take advantage of that opportunity when they would have a supportive supervisor or super supportive vice president saying, you can do this, mm -hmm. but they need to create it. Right. Yeah, I mean, so much. And, and I think this guidance and reflection is, again, I, I feel like it applies to many professions outside of outside of our own and you know i my spirit sits a lot in um well-being right and and of course those of us you know that have been in roles like ours <laughs> i don't care how many dimensions it is if it's five dimensions eight dimensions seven nine domains but you know yeah. you've all seen the wheel right yeah. and it is and and i think um one of one of my wishes and hopes for student affairs organizations is I think we have an opportunity to elevate the conversation. And, and I, there are many areas that do, but uh, I think we have the ability to center well-being as, as the center of the conversation and connect all the different areas, right? Diversity, equity, inclusion, you know, uh, counseling, mental health, fitness, you know, all, all the different academic advising, spiritual development, all of those components into an overarching wellness agenda. I think our world is not well, right? So yeah. as I'm thinking about corporate conversations or instability around the world, like there are things happening because of lack of collective well-being. And I think that in that space, right now, I, I feel like we're, I just, I have a feeling that we're still in a state of evolution um, higher education in general or higher education in the United States. So we're still thinking about a delivery model. People earn degrees, they have jobs, they good, they do good things and hopefully their social mobility, which to me, I think still could be nuanced in a different way to say, how are people elevating and considering and taking ownership of their well-being? And yeah. that still involves the job that you might want and the relationships you might want. But um I don't know. I uh, now, this sense of well-being, yeah. this concept of well-being, I've been really embracing and focused on for probably about the last five or six years now. Again, pre-pandemic, mm -hmm. and this is on both the student level, as far as what we're, how we are interacting and working with our students, but also our own and our staff's level. So, such a big topic. Um, mm -hmm. But let me talk a little bit about the student piece and it overlaps with our own professional development. In the last <clears throat> 10, 15 years, um, so much of our conversation professionally has been about the mental health of our students and how overwhelmed our counseling centers are. 
um, and wait lists and in not enough staffing in, in terms of psychologists and psychiatrists. And how do we solve that? And I can't, and you know, I've had a couple presidents point blank ask me, how many psychologists yes. do you need? How many more do you need? And my answer <clears throat> was not meant to be flippant, but it was, you can give me as many as you want and I'm probably still gonna have wait lists, okay? So that isn't the hopeful response, but it was my pragmatic response as far as I wanna set some realistic expectations with my president here. But over the last five to seven years, in a lot of the conversations I've been having with other VPs, with the directors of counseling centers and, and other health professionals, one of the things that I've come to believe is that we as a profession of student affairs, we strongly swung the pendulum to the clinical perspective, that when our students were in our office crying and struggling, we had our clinical lens on and the most natural automatic reactions, I need to get them to the counseling center, which may absolutely have been true and accurate yes. right on the mark. And yes. I don't want to minimize the accomplishment, I think in our society, at least in our profession on our campuses, I think we've destigmatized um, counseling services, which is a great thing. But I wonder, and I believe, what we've lost in that process as student affairs folks is where our foundation is and the core of the work that we say we do, which is student development, maturation, and learning. So when that student is in front of me and they're struggling, is that a clinical issue or right. is that a developmental issue? Mm -hmm. And I think as a profession for the last 10, 15 years, we've swung pretty hard to it's a clinical issue and that's where the referral has gone. And we have trained just about everyone else in the academy similarly, especially our faculty colleagues. Right. We've trained them. Here is, here is the reference, here's the, you know, how you refer, here are the numbers, here are the people, you know, get them over to them. That's all you need to do kind of thing. And faculty have learned, right? Yeah. Other colleagues in the academy have learned. Yeah. And it was just a few years ago that, you know, I was in a meeting with you know, one of our care teams. We all have these care teams now, right? We meet every week, we discuss every single student that is of concern to us. This particular student that came on our radar screen had just lost a grandparent. And so the person who brought it up said, you know, they lost their grandfather, yada, yada, yada. And folks just automatically went to, okay, let's make sure that we get them referred over to the counseling center. And the director of the counseling center who was on the care team <laughs> said, you know, that might be okay, but it also might be okay if a friend just took them for a walk tonight. Absolutely. Yeah. And it was like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. We need to be open to both of those possibilities. And I believe, you know, you know, the theme of this podcast is about hope. My belief is, and my hope is, the vast majority of our students are not usually and regularly in need of clinical services. They're in need of good friends, good mentors, role models, people who have you know, the shoulder that they can lean on and have mm -hmm. the wisdom of years that they don't yet have, but will, will achieve. Yeah. But as a profession, we've swung to the clinical lens. Yeah. And I think I would love to see us swing back a bit to what about student development? What about yeah. student maturation? What about this is what we do? Yeah. This is what peers are for. This is what a hall director is for. This is what an right. assistant dean of students is for. Um, and I'll tell you that the people that I'm finding are best with swinging this pendulum back are not necessarily the, what I would call the classically trained student affairs people who came through being an RA or a student activities leader, orientation leader, went off to graduate school in this and all that kind of stuff. It's the social work colleagues that I've been hiring lately, yeah. the MSWs, because they can pivot either way. They can pivot to, let's just get them connected with their community resources. Right. Or yeah, we really do need to get them into clinical services. So let's make that referral too. Mm -hmm. But they're not necessarily predisposed either way. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm smiling as, as you share your example, because 
I've, you know, again, sitting in care teams have had so many similar examples with the director of the, of the counseling and wellness center offering similar, you know, challenge to all of us. And I think, you know, in, in our, here, this is an example of us doing something excellent at a certain point in time in our profession has actually created some of, of the tensions or overwhelm professionally that we feel. Now, I would still, I agree with you. I think that there is a lack of well-being and humanity in society that is, that I think that that is present. I think the rising social, continually rising social issues. I mean, we're, you know, that's not manufactured. That's very real. And, and, and the ripple effects of those things are very real in a way that I certainly didn't have to deal with growing up. And at the same time, um, you know, the, I was, I remember talking to a a counseling colleague um, who was seeing a student and, you know, the student uh, and, and the appointment was about anxiety, right? And so again, regular therapy conversation about anxiety. And in this case, they were talking through an issue and the issue was that the student needed to make a phone call to address uh, an issue with uh, s- some sort of an issue. And so as they progressed, like how would you develop the coping? What 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 experience and what coping skills do you need to do to make the phone? And the student said, I, I don't talk on the phone. I don't know how to initiate a phone call. And so that was a skill, but the anxiety around not being able to perform that skill triggered real, a real anxiety response, right? So the anxiety that required the clinical support was very real. And the, 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 the middle part was, we can help you make a phone call, right? And, and that would have alleviated the triggering of the anxiety response. And so the counselor colleague said to me, she was like, I know we're not really supposed to do this, but she was like, do you want to make the phone call here with me? Like, I'm happy to sit with you while you make the phone call. And I, I've often reflected, I mean, over the past couple of years, and I, I gave a talk a couple of years ago, and I said, I think we're in a famine of intimacies. Mm-hmm. We don't know how to have meaningful and meaningful, intimate relationships. And I'm not talking about like, Title IX conversations. I'm talking about across the board. We don't like when you talk about we don't know how to develop close friendships or those operate with vulnerabilities. And I think that's again the the magic that we could bring back into well, our world. And the the developmental literature that I was raised upon 40 years ago and that we as a profession have held on to ever since. Um, all the classical developmental literature, student developmental literature, tells me what I should expect in terms of skills and things like that from an 18-year-old, right? This is what you can expect from that student as they show up on your doorstep. And I've insisted that for a while now, 10, 15 years, that's not what I've been getting on my campuses. Right. They are developmentally not at the same place as perhaps a student was 30 or 40 years ago. And this is all stereotypical, I get that. So, and I'm talking about the traditional 18 year old. Um, But that the 17, 18 year olds that we are now receiving on our campuses are developmentally not as far along as the ones 20, 30 or 40 years ago upon which our literature is built. Mm -hmm. And upon which if we are the classically trained student affairs folks, we understood this is what I'm going to get. I also don't think that we have adjusted as a profession to this reality. I'm not blaming our students. I'm not criticizing our students. I'm just saying, again, this is a reality for us. (laughs) And as I've been offering this hypothesis literally for probably the last 10 years, Mamta, Mm -hmm. I have yet to have someone disagree with me, whether they're a hall director or a vice president, Mm -hmm. they'll say, yeah, that's yeah. really what I'm dealing with, you know, and, and I would even say, I would even say it may not even be uh, a notion of far along. It's just, they're developmentally different. I find young people are far more savvy and sophisticated than I ever was um, at that particular age because of, again, the things that they've had to carry and think about, like, I didn't, I mean, we did fake nuclear drills like in our you know like yeah. I don't know that uh-huh. was good. but like to to really kind of live in in the circumstances that many of That's our right. students have lived through like th- there there is a maturity 
um, to to our students that that I think is also underappreciated. Um, and so as well as right there are things that I mean just human lifespan has increased. So of course, developmentally, like let's think about like the developmental milestones may may stretch out a bit and, and that's fine. Um, the other thing that I think about, I, I think about graduate students a lot. Okay. Um, and so I've been seeing a lot of like, oh, we don't, you know, like graduate, maybe not this parallel level of graduate student mental health support or social support. Um, and we, you know, we're in a profession that really is committed to access and equity. And we, you know, we're like, oh, let's, let's support access and equity up until graduating undergraduate experience as if now somebody has magically become full. Yeah. yeah. And, and knows how to navigate the complexities yeah. of, of, of graduate student life and, and well-being with, with all the issues, you know, that, that, that are present. And so um, I think there is a continuum of opportunity that we have in our profession to, as we have always done, continue to rise um, to the core values and moments that our communities need today. Well, the, that's consistent with, in conversation I was, I would have with my career services folks. Yes, yes. You know, and they, you know, and I'd be talking about this, where our students are developmentally, yeah, you know, all that kind of stuff. And they would say, oh, it's not just our first year students. We see it with our seniors and recent alums. Their parents are still involved in their job search or even their job performance at their first job because we hear this back from the employers. And again, I'm not being critical of our students and our alums. Um, I would, I've been saying for a while now that our, our students have had to adjust in this manner because, and you, you touched on, they've grown up in a world in which we as parents and they as individuals have to be concerned about their basic safety any place, you know, at school, right. at airports, wherever it is, you know, many of us especially my colleagues and peers, we never, we didn't have the kind of airports that we have now. We didn't have metal detectors at elementary, middle schools, or high schools. You know, you're right. The drills that we did, I grew up in Southern California. We dove under our desks for earthquakes, right? But now active shooter drills, you know, mm -hmm. I, you know, I can't, I can imagine it. I don't want to imagine that a 12 year old is having to understand if there's an active shooter at our school, this is what I need to do, mm -hmm. you know, but that is their reality. Mm -hmm. So um, Virginia Tech is history for them now. It, was, it wasn't history for me, right? Um, right. All these things that have impacted on our society have impacted on our students and basic health and safety have come into question in really serious ways that our students come to us, as you point out, very experienced with. Mm -hmm. So how do we help them enjoy this experience? Yeah. You know, I, uh, I told my staff, my recent staffs, that I knew, I knew it would be time to get out of the work when you would bring to me either one more technology thing that we need to do, and you're right, but I don't want to do it, <laughs> and... <laughs> You come to me and say, we need a new strategic plan. And I'm going, yeah, you're right. And I don't want to do that either. Um, but these, these things that are in strategic plans are important as far as how our students mm -hmm. have now changed and how we need to meet their needs. Um, and health and safety is at the forefront of them, unlike they were when I was an RA 45 years ago and even 30 years ago. Um, but when you think about the things that have happened in our society and our world that have forced this on parents and on students, it's no wonder. I mean, this is, these are, for the most part, I think, healthy responses to things that have been going on in our world. Mm -hmm. I, um, when I was working at Evergreen, our, our two kids were, were young. They were elementary, middle school age. And I remember telling my housing staff, I'm the parent that you're going to be complaining about. <laughs> I go, what do you mean? I said, you know, our kids are programmed from the time they wake up in the morning to the time they go to bed at night, seven days a week, all throughout the year. 
Mary and I have attended every practice, rehearsal, performance, competition that our kids do. Do you think I'm just gonna drop my kid off with you and then go away? No. <laughs> and do you think that the way I parented, the structure that I provided, the, the protections that I provided, we're gonna expect that to be different when we get into you? No. Um, so for most of my career, I could say these things because I was one of those parents, you know? Yeah that was influencing our work in a way that I understand it, but I also wanted to make sure, especially recently, our students are having a good experience. The strategic yeah. plan, the last strategic plan I was involved with creating, we had some students also on the group. And I turned to one of my student leaders in that meeting and I said, Matt, what do you do for fun? And Matt was one of my absolute best student leaders. And he paused for two seconds. And then he started giving me the litany of things that he was involved with as a student leader and his academic yeah. accomplishments. I said to the rest of the group, do you hear what Matt's telling you? He's talking to you about the work that he does. He's not talking to you about the things that he just right. enjoys doing, right? And especially the faculty members who were in the room that day, they said, yeah, we do need to help figure out how do we have our students thrive and enjoy this experience, not just survive it mm -hmm. you know, and get their degrees from our institution, but how do we help them thrive and enjoy what we all believe is a very special time of their life? So in retro, like, you know, I mean, kind of in reflection on your very successful and meaningful and impactful career, um, what advice would you give um, to, to those of us listening and watching the podcast. What does that look like in a way that's relevant and meaningful in student affairs today? The question of how do we help our students? Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, a lot of it depends upon what kind of institution you're operating in. Um, when I was at Pitzer, my last full-time stop, Pitzer is one of those elite colleges, part of the Claremont College Consortium. So Pomona, Harvey Mudd, Claremont McKenna, Scripps. Um, it's an elite place. So those students, by definition, are really elite students. How do we help those students thrive and enjoy the experience is different than the year I spent at University of Nevada, Reno as their interim dean of students. Mm -hmm totally different institutional mission, totally different student population, totally different um, scope um, and magnitude and numbers. And so for me, it, it's, it starts with what kind of institution am I in? Who are my students? And so um, from a student affairs lens though, um, I often think we are the moral compass for a campus. And I don't mean that in a haughty way at all mm -hmm. but when you think about it where is the moral compass for our campuses most of the time it's us you know and we're the student-centered moral compass which i think is good and right i mean mm -hmm. these are institutions of higher learning you know for our students so we're the moral compass and so we need to be able to keep perspective on our students and our collective work not just the the co-curriculum, but the curriculum as well, and the mm -hmm. overall student learning and their experience. So we need to keep perspective. We need to be able to have the ability to take a step back, not only for our own professional development that you know I talked about earlier in the podcast, but on behalf of our students too. Mm -hmm. Taking a step back means, well, this is what the student has said to me or what the students have said to me. What do I hear in that? Mm -hmm. um, and what does that mean for the practice, for our practice as student affairs folks, for teaching um, and for other things? Because we're very well situated. We listen to students. We hear students. So we know and have the ability to not only listen, but hear what they're saying to us. Mm -hmm. And then interpret that 
advocate for that with other parts of the campus community. I mean, that's mm -hmm. always been a big part of our role. And I think it's even more important now. And I do think, you know, again, the hope theme, there is more appreciation for what we bring. Mm -hmm. And every campus in this country right now is trying to figure out how do we help our students re-engage post-pandemic? How do we help them get back to really good, solid student learning, mm -hmm. um, community building, and all those kinds of things? It's not the faculty who are going to answer that question. They mm -hmm. are turning to student affairs people mm -hmm. for answers to those questions. Well, I think, you know, as I hear you reflect and, you know, you and I, I moral compass uh, very much resonates with me and frankly, just compass. I, you know, um, because I think if we could be, um, you know, uh, Larry, you know, our, my mentor, mutual colleague of yours, Larry Roper has often said, right, that, that um, we're, we're conveners of high stakes conversations. I think as as I've uh, continued to be in our career, I find that um, being present with people has a greater impact mm. than the things that I think I need to do. So the time and 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 it looks different and feels different in each of the roles that we're in, and all of those roles matter, right? So um, back to our favorite jobs of being an RA. RA being encouraged to have a program or an experience where residents maybe invite their favorite fa faculty member to a yeah. uh, a gathering, then generates empathy with faculty members of a modern day student experience outside of the classroom. If if a faculty member may never have access to that, or um, at Rollins and 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 even at Penn in our division meetings, like uh, at Rollins for sure, I would say bring a friend like. <laughs> but, you know, or we'd say, hey, athletics, come join us or advancement, come join us. And all of a sudden it's a bigger conversation, um, much like the, and, and we're skilled at it. So if we can do the crisis response folders with phone numbers and all the stuff, and, and, and we saw how well everyone learned, then I think we could do the same around hope. You know, we, <laughs> what, what you just said reminded me, there are so many allies and colleagues on our campuses yeah. that we don't think about. So, you know, you, you just talked about advancement, athletics, you know. What I thought about immediately was librarians. Oh, yes. You know, it's like nobody ever taught me that. It was only until I got into conversations and meetings in which there were some, you know, our, our head librarian or director of libraries or who met or some of their librarians. And it was like, we speak the same language. Absolutely. absolutely. And, and when they are focused on how do we help students navigate this information world, it was like, wait a minute, these are conversations we've been having about how do yes. we help our students navigate this kind of thing? It's like, no one ever told me that I had this kind of colleague and this kind yeah. of ally in our community, you know, yeah. and you ticked off a couple more athletics, you know, yeah. advancement. Um, sometimes these people just need to be reminded, wait a minute, right. we're very similar to you. Mm -hmm. We actually have very similar agendas and we can help each other in these things. And I recognize sometimes athletics is part of our portfolio, um, but I can't tell you the number of times I've had conversations with advancement colleagues about, oh. wait a minute, we're on the same page here. Yeah, You want us to graduate happy, healthy students because that makes them better alumni. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, um, I think actually some of the favorite parts of my job and and uh, I am somebody who can get drawn into, and it's not, again, understandable, drawn into the crisis management because that's, if you need to react and respond and that's what's asked of you, absolutely, that has to take precedent. However, um, I find that when I have made time, so when I have made time to talk to a finance organization that continually processes all the pizza order invoices like why do you all eat so much pizza and what's going on there like you know it's so wasteful like we're probably and, and and I'm able to say remember your favorite moment and now let me tell you a story about the student and now let's talk about the role of the pizza and because you process those invoices we get to do what we do and and it changes the affection even by which 
people process said invoices for pizza, right? And I think I think we have the ability to be healers of the ecosystem. Yeah. And um, so I, I like, and I sit with you and, and you've been somebody who's been a healer to me. Um, and so I wonder what it looks like, like how, you know, in this next season of our profession, how we can activate more of that part of who we are. You know, I come back to, first of all, there has to be self-acknowledgement of where I'm sitting, you know, what am I feeling? What am I experiencing? Mm-hmm. And accepting that as this is my reality. Um, and there's, there are good, good reasons for it. Um, one of the things I, perhaps the thing I have loved most about being in this kind of work, it didn't matter what campus I was on, no matter how small or big, I was surrounded by people that I love being surrounded by. Most of the time they were my staff, they were other student affairs folks, but you know, as we just talked about, some of my favorite colleagues were the chief of staff to the president or the mm-hmm. librarian or the director of campus safety or athletics because we would discover we have the same orientation. We have the same core values. And to be surrounded by those kinds of folks, I, I became purposeful about that, yeah. to surround myself by the people who gave me energy and who I felt like had the our students at the core of what they did. Yeah. But this could apply to any work that you do. Surrounding yourself with the people who give you energy. And we have, I have found, we have more choices about that than we sometimes believe we have, you know, going, mm-hmm. well, I'm stuck in an organizational chart. And so I have to report this way. And these are the people to my side and below. That's my world. It's like, oh man, if you see the org chart as your world, you missed out on a lot of fun. Mm. And I was very, very purposeful when I would arrive at a campus as a brand new person. I really wanted to meet people who weren't on my organizational chart. Um, That could be faculty. A lot of times it was faculty colleagues. Um, Mm. Sometimes it was people not on the campus. They were in the community. Sometimes they were other colleagues on another campus that was five miles down the road. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's what I mean also when I say creativity. Yeah, thinking outside of literally the organizational boxes on an org chart. Yeah, but reaching out to meet these people mm-hmm. and creating that connection. Um, some of my favorite folks at at Pitzer when I was there were our campus clergy or campus ministers that weren't yes. responsible to me. Amazing. But it was like, wait a minute. Again, people who we have fundamentally the same values about the student centeredness of this it's like but they weren't on my org chart you know they were part of i'm responsible for you or whatever so you have to get creative and that's the beauty of being on a college campus you can surround yourself by these kinds of folks Mm. and it always amazed me because people would be amazed by how did you meet that person how did you become a colleague Mm -hmm. of that person how did you get access to them it's like um i asked to meet (laughs) right Right. And I asked it me more than one time, perhaps. So for me, that's a big part of it is almost all of us got into this work because we love being on a college campus. We mm-hmm. love the energy it brings. We love the values it reflects. We love the beauty of the physical beauty of the place. But if you think about it the most, we're surrounded by people who are really smart. Mm-hmm. Almost all of them have really good, strong values about why they are there, what our purpose is. And they're fun. They can be fun people. You're right. We have crises. And when we have the crises, usually we get it. You know, so I know that. Um, but there is a lot of other time, too, in which we are not in crises, that there are opportunities to meet these folks. And mm-hmm. me, as an introvert, that could be hard. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I had to push myself, especially when I was the new person. And it would have been much easier for me to say, you know, I think I'll just stay home tonight. And, mm-hmm. But no, going to that social or going to that invitation that I had been offered, maybe I need to push myself a little bit too. Yeah. yeah. Well, Mike, I could talk to you for days um, and thank you uh, just for sharing your perspective and for, you know, challenging 
us to think about how we can rise um, to our best selves in, in, in this profession. That doesn't mean it's easy, um, but, but that we can, that, that there, there is beauty among all of who we are. Well, and um, I also recognize, Mamta, that, and I acknowledge this in the last five or seven years of, of my professional journey, I would say to people, I, I acknowledge, I can say some of these things because yeah. I'm not looking for another job. You know, mm -hmm. I'm not necessarily looking to impress anybody. You know, this is not an interview setting. And so there are some things that I could talk about in terms of sacred cows of our profession that is like, mm -hmm. well, if you don't like it, that, that's absolutely fine. I, you know, I love the conversation. Mm -hmm. But I recognize the privilege that I also have now at this point yeah. in the journey that, you know, I can say these things and not worry about, am I going to get paid? You know, where's my next meal mm -hmm. going to come from? Will I have employment? Those yeah. are very real things for our folks as they struggle. Absolutely. Their own journey and how do they sustain themselves? I need, I want to recognize that. Yeah. A lot of what I've said today, I recognize they necessarily couldn't say publicly. Yeah. That's it. And, and how refreshing that you're able to say it for, for us to reflect, react, respond, agree, disagree to in our own personal spaces and, and, you know, if there's resonance or agreement that, that at least we know that there's a voice, right. That, 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 that we're, that our, that our perspectives are not, um, out of the blue, right. That, that there's, right. yeah. Well, and before we go, and this would be a whole nother podcast, which <laughs> so I would also though be remiss if I didn't acknowledge that a big part of what is impacting our work now and has historically are issues about social justice, equity, and inclusion. Mm -hmm. And that a lot of what you and I have talked about in this podcast, yeah. equity and social justice are interwoven into those and figuring out how we help and equip ourselves to be better facilitators and advocates and listeners on that is hugely important because that work intertwined with our work in student affairs is more difficult than it's ever ever has been mm -hmm. i see it as an evolution though too yeah. work like folks like you and larry and and others have, that have done in your careers around this have enabled us to get to this point with those topics but it's a hard place to be mm -hmm. a hard hard place to be and we see that playing out for our students on on our campuses and we see it playing out in our communities in sometimes mm -hmm. tragic ways and so that's such critically important work and i know that weighs heavily in our folks and i know so many of our people coming into this profession especially recently this is at the forefront of what they want absolutely to do. yeah and that creates its own set of stressors and questions about sustainability and mm -hmm. health and safety that right. um, it's a, that's a whole nother podcast two or three but yeah absolutely so i didn't say this is a huge part of what we have to deal with as a profession i'm so grateful that you mentioned that yeah i mean of course as we um um have the opportunity to steward um critical conversations around the human condition you know making sure that the multitudes of human conditions are considered and held sacred, you know, and not not just singular or limited narratives. And and of course, and that means more more self work, more more shifting and challenging of systems. And while we're trying to figure that out ourselves, right? So uh, your amplification of that it just it means so much to me personally. It's um, that self work should never stop. It never mm -hmm. stops. If you're going to be an effective practitioner and a wonderful human being it will never stop um, mm -hmm. you know there are issues around this example equity inclusion diversity that literally to my last day of full-time work i was learning about it mm -hmm. and it's like wow i had not thought of that you know mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah but, what, a know, what a powerful phrase to be able to say and practice i've not thought about that i had not thought about that yeah uh, <laughs> Yeah. And I'm committed to doing my self-work. <laughs> and uh, yeah. the last last thought I'll leave you with in, on the podcast is again, yeah, you know, this is about hope, about how do we sustain ourselves. And that's a lot yeah. of the, the workshops that I've been doing in the last few years with colleagues. And I leave them with with this one. And that is 
you all are better prepared for this work than I ever was at the same point in my career. Hmm. I really, truly believe that. Now, that's because people like you and me and our peers, we've seen to that. We have provided those opportunities more than were provided 100 years ago or 50 years ago or 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. So our colleagues who are practicing now, they have more opportunities for this kind of professional development in individual ways and in collective ways than you and I ever had before, again, at the same point in our careers, mm-hmm. which means I believe they are better equipped for the work than I ever was. Yeah. And they're going to need every ounce of that in order to, to do this work and for them, for themselves to thrive and survive in this work, which I believe they will do. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I believe in our colleagues and our profession too. So um, Mike, I can't, there are no words that will adequately thank you. So I would just leave you with a simple thank you for your time and spirit and wisdom today. Um, and um, just for a brief moment, I do want to, again, take the time to um, offer thanks to our sponsors, Stylus and Simplicity. We really appreciate your support. Um, Stylus is proud to be a sponsor for Student Affairs Now podcast. Um, please take a moment to browse their uh, student affairs, diversity, and professional development titles at styluspub.com. You can use promo code SANOW for 30% off all books plus free shipping. You can also find Stylus on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter at styluspub. Simplicity is the global leader in student services technology platforms with state-of-the-art technology that empowers institutions to make data-driven decisions specific to their goals. A true partner to the institution, Simplicity supports all aspects of student life, including but not limited to career services and development, student conduct and well-being, student success and accessibility services. To learn more, visit simplicity.com or connect with Simplicity on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And much love and gratitude to our the, our producer for the podcast, Natalie Ambrosi, who does all of the behind the scenes work to make us look good and sound good. Friends, if you're listening today and not already receiving our weekly newsletter, please visit our website at studentaffairsnow.com and scroll to the bottom of the homepage to add your email to our MailChimp list. While you're there, check out our archives. Finally, again, I'm Mumta Akapati. Much love and gratitude to everyone who is watching and listening. Make it a beautiful week that honors your soul, spirit, and ancestral wisdom. Thank you all for joining.